Now, all of us know what it's like to have victory, don't you? Yeah, right? I saw so many hands going up just now. You know, somewhere along the life, there must have been that sweet moment when you experience and you know, and you know in your heart that God, especially when you're under the cover of God's favour, that you experience that victory. You know, like the time when you thought you could have A's the exam and you did, but you aced every subject that you thought you had an A in. Or the time when you got the job that you've been waiting for, you wanted so much to get, and you got it over the 10,000 applicants that were waiting outside that didn't get the job. Wow, you know. And all of, some of you are businessmen, got a tremendous... I was just speaking after the earlier service, the second service, to a brother. And he told me that for years he'd been fighting a court case and he was at the verge of bankruptcy and closing up his business. Then, two lawyers just advised him and told him, stay on, brother. This is where the Lord wants you to be. And he stayed on. And within a week, when he prayed and committed his business to the Lord, he's got a victory. And he's got a deal. Two deals. No, three deals. They came up to 13 million. Wow! That's amazing. Amazing. And I believe that word was for him. He spoke that. I've got the victory. But in the meantime, I've not been remembering God. And hence today's title, In Victory, Remember God. Amen? Remember God. You know, and all these victories may not come in those very big ways. Even sometimes when you get a little victory, you know, imagine, you go into one Utama on the weekend and you get a car park. Wow, you know, that's something. I would have done the victory lap in the car. If not, I would lose a parking space. So, and that's really amazing. Or maybe perhaps you even managed manage to fulfill your sale quota for that week. Or maybe perhaps you managed to shoot the ball into the basket from halfway down the basketball court. Wow, that's fantastic. These are little victories that come. But the satisfaction you get from the victory depends on how you manage it subsequently, how you make out of it. Victory doesn't only come to the individuals. It comes even to teams. Like, for example, football teams, you know. I'll put Manchester United aside, not that team. But many other teams experience a lot of victories. Or maybe not even teams. Communities, even communities like the housing association where I live, they managed to stand the turf and defend the, the, the residential area from having several high-rise apartments from built in that area. And it was already an achievement, a victory that we say. But not only that, even entire nations can be affected by this. Like for example, the elections that's coming, the general elections. In elections, there are always winners and losers, the victors and the vanquished. As a quick indication, just now Pastor Jeffrey was getting us to pray for the nation. How many of us are enthusiastic about the elections in two weeks? How many of us are going to vote in two weeks' time? I see some hands not going up, but great. Most of you are going to vote. And again in the balcony, for some reason, I think you need some coffee. But the coffee will only be served after the service. But, you know, this is an opportunity for you. I'm sure you think about it. Why didn't God put you in Indonesia? Why didn't God put you in Brunei? Why didn't God put you in the in, in, in Philippines or somewhere else? But in Malaysia, it's a beautiful country without any disaster, without any problems, without any wars. And yet God put you here. So fulfill your responsibility as a citizen and go out and vote. Amen? Amen. Go out and vote. Do that because God has a purpose for you here and He's going to bring about a victory. I'm not talking about victory in the elections. I'm just talking about a victory that has a purpose for your life which will influence the community and will influence the nation. It will influence the prophetic destiny of the nation. But let me tell you of a time when the electoral victor's response determined the course 
of a nation. It was May 10, 1969, when the Malaysian opposition won the majority, the majority of the votes. Then they went out into the streets and they celebrated, but the celebration that was there, by a race that most of us represent today here, provoked the majority race. And they were, they were interpreted as arrogance, as taunting even the majority race. And then this incited a response from them, a retaliatory demonstration that ended up in one of the worst racial riots that Malaysia has ever experienced in an incident known as the May 13 incident. It has become a dark blot in the annals of Malaysian history and it marked the beginning of a permanent divide and suspicion among the races, even up to today. Then, some 49 years later, and again in May, not this May, but in 2018, there was GE14, the 14th general election, which was held with a strikingly similar outcome. The opposition again won. They got the majority of the votes. But this time, the majority race was leading the opposition. And thank God, we can thank God for that, that we as Malaysians have learned our lesson and not to celebrate it and not to be overwhelmed by this victory. And we thank God there was peace, a peaceful transition from the former ruling coalition to the last ruling coalition. But needless to say, you know, you and I know how it turned out, right? The victory, like the one before, was also short-lived. The seed of discord that was sown some 50 years ago had grown bitter roots. Discontent and greed too ran deep. So another hiccup in Malaysian history which we now know as the Sheraton move, the former ruling coalition moved in through a backdoor manoeuvre and took over the government. You see, no victory is permanent. And the moment you let your guard down, you're back to square one. And sometimes even worse, even one step behind square one. Well, we are now again at the verge of yet another general election. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not doing a political speech here, okay? I'm not for the opposition. I'm not for the ruling coalition. I'm just telling you facts that happen. That how victory, subsequent numerous victories, can affect the cause of a nation. And now, we are at the verge of deciding on the destiny or the future of this nation, your nation and my nation, Malaysia. Oh, how we need to seek God and remember God in times like this. To seek God again. Just now, Pastor Jeffrey asked, how many of you attended the last Tuesday's prayer altar that was led by the, leader, by the elders? And I, I don't see many hands. No, no, you don't have to put up your hands. It's okay. But in case, in case you feel any remorse for not attending last Tuesday's one, well, the altar will be open afterwards for repentance. Okay. <laughs> But, but, but still, there's time for recourse. Next Tuesday and the Tuesday after that, there's still a chance. Come together, pray for the nation. Remember God, cry out to God. It's so important. We had victories after victories before, but it's important that we remember God. We remember God. Ask God, Lord, this nation is yours. Pastor Jeffrey just now read from Isaiah that in this land, the Lord will determine whom He will raise and whom He will bring down. Wow, it's so important that we seek God in times like this. But what you see happening in our nation for the past five decades reflected also what happened in the book of Judges. Chapter 8 to be exact. It's not about elections. Chapter 8 doesn't talk about elections. There's no GE15 or something inside here. No, I'm not prophesying. 
But it tells how an individual that succumbed to the pitfalls of victory, the pitfalls of victory, determine the direction of an entire nation. In chapter 7 last week, you heard about all the rah-rah things, you know, how, how, how Gideon came under the influence and the direction of God and God raised him up to win the numerous battles that were there. It was really fantastic. And he gave this miraculous win to Gideon's army of 300 over the oppressors, the Midianites that numbered about 135,000. Wow, praise the Lord. That tremendous victory came over because of Gideon's trust and obedience unto God. They flew high. But in chapter 8 now, did they last long? Today in chapter 8, you begin to see the dark side of Gideon. I never saw it myself until I'm given this chapter to seek the Lord on, to ask what message have you got for your people. It's the other side of the coin. It was Gideon's somewhat ungodly response to an overwhelmingly God-given, tremendous victory that later affected the destiny of Israel or what happened over the next 500 years. Wow! Can man? One person's response can, can have such a great effect. Well, he was judged, the leader that was raised to lead Israel at the time. You would see also by now that the entire book of Judges, what we are doing, we have been doing weekly now, you'll find that there's this recurring pattern that's in the book of Judges. There's this pattern of God's people disobeying God and falling into disfavor. And then as he falls into disfavor, they go into oppression by their enemies. And when they go into oppression, they cry out to the Lord, Lord, we are sorry, we are sorry, Lord, help us, help us. And Lord, always hearing them because He is faithful to His part of the covenant. And when God hears, He still, when His people return to Him, He still listens to them. And then He raises up a leader. And then the leader would, con would bring the people out of oppression. And He raises up these leaders from common folks, common folks, just like you and me, regardless of gender. Each leader or champion or judge would have different flaws or setbacks or character failures that would have hindered them. But God was patient and God would raise every leader. And then these leaders, when subsequently after the initial reluctance, obeyed God, it, would resulted, it resulted in a partnership between the leader and God. And then God does a tremendous, powerful thing, powerful exploits like Gideon, with just 300 people routing an army of 120, well, leaving the 15,000 uh, later, which you will hear in a short while. These were tremendous exploits, tremendous victory. I don't know about you, but putting leadership aside, you and I are very much like these common people that God raises up. God doesn't only raise kings and governors, priests and prophets. No, He raised common people like you and I common people with character flaws, with setbacks, with speech impediments, with illnesses, with, with, with physical uh, impediments and all that. God raises common people and then He turns the ordinary into extraordinary. He turns the natural into supernatural. Amen? And then He lets us determine the future of the nation He puts us in. Amen? Wow. Tell your neighbour, you are extraordinary with God. Go on, tell the neighbour next to you, you're extraordinary with God. Tell the other neighbour on the other side, you are impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. So, 
It is with Gideon. In Judges chapter 8, the earlier part from verses 1 to 12, I'm not going to read to you, but we're going to, I'm going to tell you about what happened in these verses. Well, they have already routed 120,000 of the Midianites. Now, this is the last part where Gideon was chasing after the remaining 15,000 Midianites and the two remaining kings, Zeba and Zalmunah. Ah, I've been practicing these two names. So hard, tongue twister. Zeba and Zalmunah. And it was a routing of the rem remnants of this army. And he was chasing them south. I think Pastor uh, Isaac gave a very good map. I, I don't know where they gave it again yesterday, but he gave a very good map of the two towns. They passed by these two towns of Sarkov and Peniel. And as they passed by these two towns, they were exhausted, they were tired, they were asking for provisions. And you know what the men of Sarkov and Peniel say? Well, they said this, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunah in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Oh, instead of giving them or just go by, go by, they taunted Gideon's army. You know, can you imagine how Gideon felt? To be busy doing the Lord's work at great risk to self and a great sacrifice is already one thing. Now to be withheld from provisions, from the resources, and on top of that, to be ridiculed and taunted, that's another. It's adding salt to the wound. But hey, you would have felt that before, haven't you? Yeah, I'm sure in a place of work, sometimes even amongst the circle of friends, you would have gone through a situation like that before. But believe you me, the Lord has a greater purpose behind that. It's not about chasing after Midianites today because there are no more Midianites. Gideon has already over and done with Habis, Salasai. Now, but you may have felt your, that you had your hands tied while you were doing the Lord's work. And while you're having your hands tied, you gave your best and you felt you were maybe treated unfairly or maybe even treated like nobody while you're doing the Lord's work. It, if it was that for you, imagine Gideon himself was asked to lead the whole of God's people. How exasperating, how humiliating it was for Gideon to be treated like that by the men of Sarkov and Peniel. And he would have taken great offence inside him. Mm, he's very angry. And this led him to the first of the three major pitfalls that await those who have victory or great success thrust upon them. And I'm going to talk about it today. And I'd like us to be aware of these pitfalls because just now, so many of your hands put up in victory, right? And again, the very same, it was a confirmation from the Lord. The brother who shared to me after the earlier service, he said, that was exactly what happened to me. Thank you for the word. And I believe the Lord would be speaking to many of you today that when you had the victory, be careful of these three major pitfalls. But then again, we should not Refrain, no, 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 Lord, I don't want the victory, I don't want the success. No, the Lord has a special favour upon all of you, all of us, not only just this church, but upon all of His people because God is a faithful God. He keeps His hazard part of the covenant and He follows us, He watches over us, He cares for us, He loves us every step of the way. And that's why He gives us that victory. He gives you the victory. He gives you the success. Not only just because we are worthy, Lord, we are so worthy, give us a bit. No, but because of His love for all of us, and He gives us that victory. Romans 8.31 tells us, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be? Yes, who can be against us? Amen. Hallelujah. And when and when, not if, but when and when victory does come, please be aware of these pitfalls that may follow it. The first of this pitfall that Gideon did is taking revenge. He took revenge. It was not beyond Gideon to get his own back on those who taunted, who humiliated, who hindered him. 
And he also exacted vengeance on those who took lives too. Was that the right thing? Let's read together. In Judges chapter 8, verse 16, this is what the scripture says. Gideon, he, he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. This was what he promised earlier, a few verses earlier, when he passed by them. Now he has won the victory, he's coming back now. And he's, this is what he did. And then, after he has done that, the Bible records he did that. He actually carried out his threat. Then Gideon turned to the captured Midianite kings. And then he said to them in verse 19, Those were my brothers, the sons of my mother. Well, sounds a bit like the return of the king. Huh? As surely as the Lord lives, if he has spared the lives, I would not have killed you. Then immediately after that, turning to his eldest son, Jester, he said this, Kill them. Wow. Certainly Gideon meant to exact vengeance upon those men. In a manner like tit for tat. That's what you did to me. So now they have an upper hand in victory. I do the same to you. But was he right in doing so? No, he wasn't. Listen to what Jesus said, in exact opposite to what Gideon did. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 38, 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other so. Now, I'm not asking you all to go out afterwards and start offering people a slap, slap, slap me. No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. All it means is that do not return evil for evil. That's what Jesus is saying. Do not retaliate evil with evil, especially when you already have the upper hand in victory. Right? Do not seek revenge. For the Lord also said in Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine. Let the Lord vindicate you. And I assure you, dear brother, dear sister, dear friend, the Lord will vindicate. He is faithful. He will vindicate. Amen. Trust. He, he is the faithful, the same God who watches over Israel, who neither slumber nor sleep, who watches your coming in, your going out. He watches over you and He will vindicate. He knows exactly not only what you have done or what you have said, but He also knows what's in your heart. He will vindicate you. So, what could possibly be a blessing for you, could easily turn sour when you taint it with an act of revenge, of vengeance, of evil. May I appeal to you, take the higher road. Don't take the low road. Take the higher road when you could have gotten your own back. Like in some instances, like refraining. When, 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 when people are gossiping about that, that, that person who backstabbed you in the office, an office colleague perhaps, you refrain from doing so when you easily could have done so and roasted him in a gossip pit, but you refrain from doing so. Or you could have refrained from someone who has been mean or offensive to you, from your circle of friends, from, from excluding them, because you still value the friendship. Because the Lord tells us, love your enemies. Continue to do so. Or perhaps maybe you refrain from using a financial windfall that suddenly come upon you to put a boastful neighbour or a friend in place. You know that time you boasted to me about the car or the house or the bag or the watch you had? Well, look at mine. This is better now, you know. Ha, ah, you see? That's taking revenge. Not in a big way, not side and form four type of revenge, but that's taking revenge. You're, you're, you're using what financial resources you have, what victory you have to put the other person in the rightful place. That's not the right thing to do. The world today says, revenge is a dish best served cold. 
I'm not talking about going to the buffet. It's about revenge. Coldness conveys a connotation of devoid of love, of compassion, of mercy. But the exact opposite. Jesus' words are words of love, compassion, grace, and mercy. And not only that, he is not NATO. No action talk only. He leaves out what he says. He walks the talk. He does it in his ministry. He does it even right up until the cross. He forgives. Now, many of us have, have harbored grievances, taunts, humiliation, even pains, losses in us, even perhaps maybe even been sidelined or marginalized all this while. And some of us may even have that desire in our hearts, waiting for the day, that, that, that one day, that, you know, when I get the upper hand, wah, bantai saja, retribution time has come. May I appeal to you, dear brother, let the Lord take over. Don't do that. It's certainly not the way that Jesus showed us. Because even as He hung on the cross, He said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. And then afterwards, they said what Pastor Jeffrey said, it is finished. Yes, but these were the last words of Jesus. Forgive them. The very same people, not only humiliated, not only nailed Him, not only scourged Him and whipped Him and did everything, spit on Him. Forgive them. Forgive them. Let me tell you a story of Cory Ten Boom. How many of you have heard of Cory Ten Boom? Quite a number. Yeah, quite a number. Of course, the balcony, nobody has heard. It's okay. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. Forgive me, brother. Sister, I keep on talking about it because I don't see y'all. See, we all just sat there. It's okay, it's okay. I, I, believe, I believe the Lord, if He can raise dry bones, He can raise all of us. So, Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch young lady who lived during the time of the German occupation of Holland, or now called Netherlands. She was in her 20s at the time. And her family, together with her, harbored Jews, hid the Jews in their homes because they see the plight, they were, in, they were running, they were refugees, nowhere to go, and they hid them. But they were found out and the whole family was brought to the concentration camp. And in the concentration camp, Corrie, Corrie Ten Boom, was stripped of her dignity, literally. And she saw her father and her younger sister, Betsy, die in front of her eyes. She suffered more at the hands of other people than you could possibly imagine. And this is exactly why her encounter with forgiveness is so memorable. She wrote it out in a book. And you can read out the book. You can find the book called When the Tramp. And then she said this, related this. Sometime, this after the war, and she was doing ministry. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS agent, the SS man, who stood guard at the shower door at the processing centre in Ravensbrück. He was the first of the actual jailers that I saw since the war was over. And suddenly, it all came back. The room full of mocking men, the heap of clothing on the floor, and the pain-blanched face of Betsy as she headed towards death. He came up to me as the church service was over, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you said, Jesus washed away my sin. And as he said that, he raised his hand to shake hers. And this is what Corrie Ten Boom wrote. That I, 
who preach so often about forgiveness in this church in Blumendal, in Netherlands, on forgiveness, kept my hand at my side. I just couldn't bring up to shake his hands. Inside her, the vengeful thoughts, the anger was boiling inside her. And she knew the sin of them, of these thoughts. She knew that Christ had died for this man. And she asked herself, how could I ask for more? And she prayed, Lord Jesus, forgive me for what I'm feeling, what I'm going through, but help me forgive this man. It took quite a moment as Corey struggled within herself and finally, she managed to put a hand out to shake his. And then she said, as I took his hand, an incredible thing happened, and this is her words, huh? from my shoulder along my arms and through my hand, I felt a current seems to pass from me to him. And inside my heart, my heart leapt with a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Wow. And I discovered then that it is not our forgiveness nor our goodness that the healing of the world hinges, but on His, but on Jesus. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, He gives along with His command, His love. He doesn't just tell us, go and do. He demonstrated it. He did it Himself. And not only that, He is with you, each one of you, enabling you, empowering you to be able to do what He did Himself as He hung upon the cross. Forgiveness can be hard, but it is not our forgiveness that the world's healing hinges, but on His. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know whom some of you may be struggling to forgive. But believe you me, whether it's a small matter, a big matter, someone close to you, a loved one, or someone distant, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And I pray that the words of Corrie Ten Boom will be an encouragement to you. That today, today, that if you have been harboring that, that in that little dark recess in your heart, probably sometimes it's so locked, so tight inside there that you may have lost the key and you don't know where it is. But it may have grown bitter root. It may have caused you that hurt, that grief that's so deep that you could not let go of it. Today, make the conscious decision and say, yes, Lord, I will let it go. I will forgive. And believe you me, the God of the Hazard Covenant, the God of love, will enable you or you or you to do so, to forgive and to let go. Amen? He will do so. When you make the choice to forgive today, the Holy Spirit takes over and empowers this divine transaction that's going to happen in you. If the same God who can make dry bones come alive, He can transform your heart. Amen? The next pitfall, to watch out for in a moment of victory is to collect rewards for self-gain. I'm not talking about bonus link points. Neither am I saying you return your credit card points for rewards. Not about that at all. Where do I find it? In Judges chapter 8. It's from verse 22. After all of Gideon's triumph, the Israelite called on Gideon. And this is what they said to him. Rule over us, you, your son and your grandson because He have saved us from the hand of Midian. Wow, it's a great honour, isn't it? But Gideon declined this honour. 
for one reason and another, only known to himself. The Bible is silent on this. But perhaps Gideon wanted to honour God because after that, in verse 23, he says, the Lord will rule over you. And God honoured that. In return, he blessed the land with 40 years of peace. But however, Gideon went one step further and he asked for material compensation. He said this after, in the very next verse, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Now, these earrings in those times were made of solid gold, by the way. Yeah? Uh, not the little tiny stud or maybe the, 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 what do you call it? Not the cosmetic, the, 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 the synthetic material that we use nowadays, the glittering ones, those were solid gold. You know, our East Malaysian sisters wear that until even sometimes a year dropped down to the knees. Those were heavy. Now, the weight of the total earrings that were collected from all of Israel. Remember, Moses brought about 2-3 million people out of Egypt. So by then, by Gideon's time, imagine how many people there are. Of course, one generation has died after Joshua, but then there's the next generation that rose and they took the plunder. And you know, the Bible records the plunder as being equal to 17,000 shekels. 17,000, that's equivalent to 19.5 kilos. Wow. You know, you know what I did? Well, I had to check, right? I went to the, the, the gold prices and checked and found out that is equivalent to about 1.3 million USD today in today's cost, today's prices, and equivalent to 6.1 million ringgit today. Wow, there's a lot of money. It's a whole lot of assets back in 1248 BC. That's a long time ago. And this amount of gold certainly is worth a lot, a lot, a lot of money. He was probably the richest man around that time. He probably wasn't as rich as Solomon, which came after him, but Solomon was the king after all. But he certainly went for the material gains. He was very rich. In fact, he could be compared to the likes of Elon Musk during his time. The richest man in the world. Don't get me wrong. Frankly, there's nothing wrong with collecting rewards, especially if it's just. And if it is hard-earned and deserving. Because after all, it's a symbol that actually signifies the Lord's favour on you. In many times, when you honestly and work, and work hard for it in a venture, in a project, the problem comes. The problem comes when the reward is mismanaged afterwards. When the reward is mismanaged afterwards. It is undoubtedly wrong in this case, in Gideon, in God's eyes, in two counts. The first count was, a reward was requested in exchange for a re responsibility relinquished. What do I mean by that? When Gideon didn't want to take on the responsibility of governing the land, he took the reward instead. It could be that he wanted to honour God and say, God, you rule over the people. That would, who's going to govern the land when he said that? Some scholars say that maybe perhaps it wasn't time ready for him to be king and in God's time. But how did he know that? There wasn't time for him to govern the land. So there may be other reasons why Gideon did that. If you go back a little bit, the story of Gideon began in Judges chapter 6, in verses 11 to 15. And when God sent his angel to look for Gideon, you know where was Gideon? He was hiding in a wine press, planting wheat in a wine press, hidden from the eyes of the oppressors, the, the enemy, the Midianites. He was not a brave man. Yeah? And when he did that, the angels restored him, gave him confidence, and he asked for signs, and step by step, Lanka Demi Lanka, the Lord assisted him, assured him, affirmed him, and shaped in and moulded him 
to have victory after victory. And he continued to grow in stature. And then there was this tremendous victory with just 300 men, a supernatural victory, overwhelming victory. And yet, after the victory, what happened? Sorry, no, thank you. I don't want to lead your people, you know. I, I, I'm happy being a judge. You call me the judge, I'll judge. But A, how about having an earring from each of you? He went for the material rewards. He chose the easier path of wealth. The other area that incurred God's wrath is the ostentatious display of wealth. He could have kept the money, he could have benefited the poor, he could have done so many things, he could have built a nicer house. But what did he do? He made a golden ephod. I'm going to tell you why an ephod meant so much. In Judges 8.27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, in his own hometown. So he brought some glory to the hometown. People flocked to it. But what did they do when they flocked to it? All of Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So what started off as a blessing after a victory and a reward for Gideon became a trophy, an idol that he worshipped it. Not only him, his family worshipped it. Not only them, the whole nation came. Wow, what a beautiful ephod. Oh, great Gideon. Oh, such a beautiful piece of goal and achievement that you've done. A whole nation began to be turned away from God. Now, why an ephod? He could have made a golden calf. He could have made a golden seat or a golden uh, chariot or anything. He made an ephod because the ephod is actually the outer tunic that the priests wear. Normal priests will wear a linen tunic, but the high priest has a special, can I have the slide? Has a special ephod, which on the breastplate has the 12 precious stones sewn into the breastplate. And each stone represents a tribe of Israel. Together, they represent the whole nation of Israel. And the breastplate is worn close to the high priest's heart because it's meant to be always the affairs of the 12 tribes, the affairs of the nation was always meant to be in the care and the love of the high priest and by extension to God. Now you see the significance of the ephod. He made something which was spiritual into an object of idolatry. He exchanged his spiritual right for material gains. And then the Bible described God's people as having prostituted themselves. Very strong word, prostituted themselves. But it meant exactly that. The people sold off their spiritual rights for material gains. The same way that Gideon did. And you remember that in Exodus? When Moses went up to Mount Sinai and consulted God as to his plans, to his direction for the people, what did the people at the foot of the mountain do? What did Aaron do? They created a golden calf. Created a golden calf. And they worshipped the calf too. Both incidences incurred God's wrath. Wow. Exchanging our spiritual legacy, our right for material gains. Over my many years as a Christian leader and as a pastor, I've had tremendous, I've had countless conversations with many, many young adults, some of whom are now become not so young anymore. They have grown to be there in the 40s and 50s. 
But these young adults and couples have tremendous promise and potential in them. They were like what Ephesians 4, verses 12 and 13 described. They were so anointed that they could equip the saints for the works of service and so that the body of Christ may be built up and they themselves may mature and attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in them. Wow, they have this potential. But you know what's a surprising thing? This was apparent to many people around them. It was apparent to me and many other people. But the last people to realize that seem to be they themselves. Either they don't realize it, which couldn't be because everybody could have been telling them about it, or they chose to ignore it. And in the course of time, many were caught up in the pursuit of the job, of the career, saving up for the children's education, building the family home, and later even perhaps caring for the elderly. As they grew older, their parents grew older. And when they grow old, you could see it becoming very apparent. They're still walking with the Lord, but never walking into the divine destiny. They were walking with the Lord, but they're never walking into the divine destiny. The destiny that were meant to be theirs, the purpose and the calling in their life that's higher, that's greater than what they have been doing all that while. And now that they're doing, they seem even to be just on cruise control. If I, if I might borrow an analogy from Busan, the train from Busan, or many of you don't watch Korean, okay? Maybe from a Netflix, a popular Netflix series, Walking Dead. They have the spiritually living and you have the spiritually dead. But they are in between, the, neither, neither the spiritually living nor the walking spiritually zombies. They are halfway, neither alive nor dead. And they are on cruise control with hardly any involvement in serving and very, apparently very much into the comfort zone. Very much like the way Gideon went. Now please don't get me wrong here. I'm treading on very thin ice now. I'm walking on sensitive ground. Because none of these pursuits are wrong. Going after a job, you know, a building, kept saving up for your children's education, caring for the elderly, building your family home, nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. In fact, for the most part, most would have honoured God first and then go after these pursuits in life. That's absolutely fine. That's absolutely fine. You would have done well in life, but always bear in mind. All I'm saying is that, bear in mind, don't let your divine destiny pass you by. Don't let your divine destiny pass you by. Because some of us, and I speak in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that some of us know that this was a higher calling and I said, was. This was a higher calling on your life. Something greater. A greater purpose in your life. Somewhere, some time ago. It could have been a week ago. It could have been months ago. It could have been years ago. But you ignored that. And you allowed that to pass you by. And today, today, you may have a big house. You may have a big car. You may have children going to the top universities in the world. But you miss that, which the Lord has called upon you. Perhaps it's the hubris of daily life that had made the voice that once spoke to you softer. Perhaps it's been muffled by the hustle and bustle of family, home, job, or hobbies. But dear brother, dear sister, dear friend, the voice has not gone completely silent, right? So some of you today, in Jesus Christ's name, He's still speaking to you. If it's you or your spouse 
that may have heard this voice, may I plead to you, may I encourage you, respond to it. Respond to it. Afterwards, the altar is going to be open. And I pray and I ask and I plead to you, respond to it. Come forward and someone, a pastor or a leader here, will pray with you, will pray with you on that so that you can flow into your divine destiny. Amen? So you can flow into your divine destiny. Each one of us, not only, it's not only for you, for your family, for your community, it's also for the nation. Who knows? You might be the next Hena Yo. Who knows? You might be the next Yobi Yin. Who knows that you might be the next Prime Minister of Malaysia. I'm speaking about this. It so happens that elections are coming near. No, I'm not asking you to go and start nominating yourself. That's why, that's yesterday. It's too late. Maybe the next election. But hey, young person, dear brother, dear sister, who knows? The Lord may have called you for that. Yeah? Not necessarily be a pastor. It's important that you know that the voice that called you into your prophetic destiny, your divine destiny. And the third pitfall, falling a victory, and the most dangerous one, is that after some time, the blessed completely fail to remember God. Completely fail to remember God. In Judges chapter 8, verses 29 to 31, Jerubal, which is Gideon's nickname, son of Joash, went back home to live. That's uh, uh, Oprah. He had several, 70 sons of his own. Not seven, not 17, uh, seven, zero, 70 sons of his own. For he had many wives. And on top of that, he also has a concubine yeah, who lived in Shechem, who also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Abimelech later. And then what happened? Gideon died. And then in verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died, than the Israelites again, what? What did they do? prostituted themselves to the Baals. This time, and not only to the ephod, they prostituted themselves to all the Baals, or the Baals, as they call it, Americans call it. They set up Baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord, their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They did not remember the Lord, their God, Although God gave them peace for 40 years, they did not seek the blessed soul while enjoying the blessings. How do I know they already begun to ignore God, to forget about God in all these 40 years, not only after Gideon died? Why? Because they began worshipping the golden effort, effort that Gideon made just after the Midianites' defeat. After they have done away with the two kings, he made the golden effort and put it in his, his hometown. And they began worshipping it instead of turning to Yahweh. Materialism featured more prominently than the spiritual state, the spiritual health of the people. How important do you value your spiritual health? Then Gideon brazenly practiced intermarriage with the Canaanite, which was also forbidden by God. It wasn't after 40 years at his deathbed he did that. He already did that right from the beginning. He set an example for the rest of Israel to follow. Being unequally yoked did not seem to present a problem to the people of Israel at that time. Now with the 70 sons that Gideon had, I'm not surprised they may have ran out of Jewish women. 
to marry in order to satisfy his nuptial lust. How important is being equally yoked to you? And Gideon had many wives. He didn't, the Bible didn't say how many, but he certainly had many. He must have many to be able to father 70 sons. But on top of that, that's not enough. He had one more concubine. A monogamous marriage has always been God's original design. Jesus said, even the hardness of your heart, Moses gave in. That was not in God's design. So we as Christians, we need to be aware of the importance and faithfully uphold the institution of a monogamous marriage. One man, one wife. Every elder, I'm sure the elders will testify to it, must be men of one wife. I'm sure all of them are. You know, but it's so important that all of us, not only, even though you may not be an elder, but you are an important person in God's family. One person led the whole nation astray. And we need to show, not only just a show, but we need to demonstrate in our remembrance of the Lord to uphold the institution of a monogamous marriage. How important is it to you? If these are not important, then these are early symptoms of an underlying problem that you have begun to forget God. You have not remembered God. But Gideon and Israelites have already begun to forget God the moment the victory was won. So it's not surprising that Baal and other forms of idolatrous worship completely took over when Gideon died. The last vestige of influence dissipated with his death. And then, in the process of forgetting God, ah, this comes, the other part. And I'm not going to tell you about it. You know why? Because it's found in Judges chapter 9. The next chapter. So if you've been following this, it's about Abimelech, by the way. I'll give you a little hint, all right? He did a tremendous thing, which you're going to find out. So follow the continuing series of Judges. Don't miss next week's exciting installment, okay? Come for next week, all right? Okay, commercial over. <laughs> now that you have followed about eight chapters of Judges, you would have found there is this recurring pattern. Every time the people listen to God, turn back to God, God's intervention gave them tremendous victory. And then what happened? They forgot God. And then what happened? The next part of the cycle, there will be a terrible outcome, a terrible disaster, a crisis that will befall them, an oppression, a persecution that will befall them once the people forgot about God. We have seen today how a tremendous victory with God's presence can rapidly turn sour. When God's people disregarded the pitfalls of taking revenge, collecting rewards for self-gain, and not remembering God. But for each, the good news is that for each, there's still a recourse. There's still a recourse of respectively for the taking revenge, practice forgiveness. For collecting rewards for self-gain, offer oneself. Go into your prophetic destiny. And when you have this tendency to forget God, Seek after God. How do we seek after God? Well, remember the Lord. In victory, remember God. Come, say it after me. One, two. In victory, remember God. One more time, come on. You don't sound convincing. One, two. In victory, remember God. Hallelujah. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And you know, 
The three recourses, when you have forgiveness, when you have offering, and when you have seeking God, when you put them all together, what do you get? An altar. That is what an altar for. It's a place of remembrance. It's, it's, it's a place of sacrifice. Notice a little bit of Bible trivia. Of the 459 references to altar or altars found in the whole of the Bible, you know how many are found in the book of Judges? No, a little bit more than one. Okay. Only 10. Only 10 are found in the book of Judges. And that's not it. You know, out of the 10, how many of the 10 altars were erected by all the judges? Seven were erected by one person only, Gideon. None of the other judges erected any altar to God. You check it for yourself in the whole book of Judges. They erected any altar. And the other three were by the parents of Samson and the people who cried out to the Lord on their own and they cried out from the altar. That was the only references. Gideon erected altars. And, and one more thing, you know when he erected the altars? When he came out of the wine press, he established an altar when the angel of the Lord spoke to him. And then when, when he chose the man, he erected another altar. And then when he had a victory, the initial victory, he erected another altar. And these were the times when God shaped Gideon, gave him victory, Lanka demi Lanka, victory after victory, small victories leading to bigger ones. He erected his altars. The seven references were all to Gideon. And you know what happened? After he had the tremendous, overwhelming victory, no more altars were erected. He forgot God completely. Sounds a bit like me sometimes. You know, I, 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 as a pastor, I always pray for people and they say, Lord, give me healing. Give me uh, a blessing. My business is not doing well. My, my, my loved ones are not doing well. Give me salvation and all that. I, I do pray. I believe. I pray in faith. But sometimes I struggle with this thought. Lord, why do you say no so many times? And I believe God in His providence knows that sometimes, not always, sometimes only here, if He gives the blessings, very soon, the person may enjoy the blessing, but they forget the blessed soul. Forget the blessing. So, in every victory, remember God. Don't forget the blessing. Amen. Amen. Let me encourage you. Build a personal altar. I know many of you have already. The personal altar could be in the form of a personal devotion. Or build an altar for your family. Build an altar for your community. Even in your zone, yourself. Have an altar, separate altar. Because each altar is a place of remembrance of the Lord. It's so important. Be thankful. Cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Because that's what an altar is for. Come before God and say, Lord, terima kasih. Thank you. Thank you. But more than that, more than that, some of us may be struggling with forgiveness. But believe you me, that forgiveness comes only through Jesus. Remember the story of Corrie Ten Boom. It's not about us making the effort to say, I will forgive and that's it. It's not as simple as that. Forgiveness comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Him being the permanent sacrifice on the altar as the Holy Lamb of God for your sins and my sins. So today, whether you need to appropriate forgiveness through Jesus Christ 
for someone, some little dark corner of your heart they've been struggling with and you want to appropriate that. Or perhaps maybe you know that you have a higher calling but you have been ignoring it and you want to consecrate yourself today. Or perhaps you have been given some blessing, maybe a small one, maybe even a bigger one and you have forgotten. Not that you choose to, but along the way you have forgotten about the Lord. And you want to make right. You want to say, Terima kasih Tuhan. I want to thank you, Lord. If that's be you, I would like to invite you to stand. Make the place where you are right now as a place of consecration, a holy place. You know why when Moses encountered the burning bush, he was going about his own way. But when he heard the voice, Moses calling him, he turned aside from that and he walked towards it. Be intentional. Make the place where you are sitting a place of consecration. It may not be a deed. It may not be wanting to forgive someone. But you just say, Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for all the victories. So many of you put up hands just now. I want to thank you for all the victories they've done in my life. Today, I want to say, Lord, I want to remember you. I want to remember you for every victory you've given to me. May I invite you to stand where you are. May I invite you to stand where you are. That Lord, thank you so much. And together, if it may be a struggle that I have to forgive someone, or may it be even a place of consecration for you. Honour the Lord. It's not for me, not for the spouse next to you, not for the friends that brought you but you stand where you are and let me pray for you. But before I do that, I know that amongst us, there's a special group of friends that the Lord called today. He called you in as no, by no accident that the Lord called you into His house. And because there's a tugging in your heart and you want to experience of this love, the forgiveness that you never had before that only the Lord Jesus can give. And you want to experience that in your life. And you want to tell the Lord, today is the beginning of the rest of my life. It's a new day. And I want to accept you, Lord Jesus, into my heart today. If that's you too, I invite you to stand together as I pray for you. Father God, I just want to pray for my dear friends, brothers and sisters who are here. Lord, the first group, Lord God, some who have been struggling with this issue of forgiveness, Lord God. It may be an offence or a bitter root that has grown deep over the years, Lord, but you know, you know, for you, O God, who watches over Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleep. You know as you watch over our coming in and going out, Lord. I pray, Father, your Spirit may come. In Jesus' name, Lord God, you bring about that forgiveness. Lord God, I pray too, Lord God, that those who have missed their prophetic calling, Lord, it's not too late, Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that you continue to speak to them. Lord, that you will answer the calling even today. Today, they make the decision and say, Lord, that it is I, Lord, that you call. Send me. As Isaiah said, it is I, send me. Oh, Lord God, and even if there are those, Lord, that may have forgotten for all the victories, for all that they have done in their life, Lord, I pray, Father, that you will cultivate, you begin that spark of thankfulness in their hearts, Lord, that we will remember God Almighty, that we will remember God, you are the giver of all blessings, Father. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you. We really want to honour you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Yes, our source of strength, our source of hope can be found in no other 
than Christ alone. Wow, what a privilege it is to stand under the favour of the Lord God Almighty. Let His favour rest upon us. So even as we depart from His sanctuary, from His house, let me pray a benediction over you. The Lord God, you see your people. It's even as Solomon says, a people as great as this, each one with his own ordained destiny that I see before my eyes, that it's the Lord that has ordained it in your life. And I pray, Lord God, as they go out from this place, that you will bless them, you will keep them, Lord God. That, Lord, it will cause your face to shine over each one so that they may experience of your grace, Lord, in everything that they do. And Lord, may you turn your countenance towards them. Lord, in all situations, that Lord, they will be surrounded by your shalom, Father. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, your love and your mercy. We pray this and we ask of you. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.